This episode is brought to you by The Skeptical Buddha, The Tao of Science. My book, which is a thoughtful discourse on Eastern philosophy and how it helped birth ideas required for science and skepticism and the way it fell behind in the face of new evidence. This book discusses the long history of both philosophies as well as the tenets and variations within the varying sects along with psychology and our own natural biases. It discusses how to counter our natural biases using science and the underlying concepts of meditation and mindfulness, a more complex understanding of how science operates than most of the public understands, and why it is the best tool we have to discover truth and reality, as well as philosophical ideas we might embrace as technology progresses. The material is packaged in a way that the average person can understand with rich illustrations to draw the reader in and feel at peace. To those of you who nerded out to Tolkien's works in deep detail, including the rough drafts and other canonical texts, you'll know that Tolkien sat down and tried to write a sequel to The Lord of the Rings. It takes place in and around Gondor, where a cult of Sauron is rising among the young people. At this point, most of the characters you know are dead, or, if elvish, gone from Middle-earth. The only ones still alive and present could be Legolas and Gimli, but that's only if you don't take a literal reading and they're going to head out very soon to the west. He sets it as 150 years after the fall of Sauron, during the reign of Eldarion. However, King Elisar, or Aragorn as people know him, lived 122 years during his reign, so the time and dates are off. The downside of rough drafts is they're being a bit unpolished and a bit inaccurate. Perhaps a better time period would be 135 to 150 years, or even 125. King Eldarion has now been king for 13 to 28 years, or even just three years. Already, we're given leave to pick the date ourselves thanks to this error on his part. However, 122 makes the most sense, as you'll see in a moment. It's a dark story for the first chapter, and it's kind of there where he just stops. All the mythology and fantasy is just gone. It becomes less Lord of the Rings and more a light song of ice and fire. Politics and darkness, no hope and no light. This is so against the entire point of any of his writings that he abandoned it. It's too real and less mythology for him, which is why he hated reading Dune. However, if one was to build on it and make it just one thread of the story, as two or more players in a large world, it could be a decent Tolkien-esque book. I pulled together ideas over the last decade that truly would put an end to Middle-earth that would allow it to become just Earth. What do you do in a Tolkien book when you want to make it less dark? Well, you bring in Hobbits, obviously. I mean, look at the new Rings of Power series. Hobbits are the perfect counter to seriousness. They break it up and make it more human, showing the extreme side of humanity, seriousness, hopelessness, and cruel contrasted with hope, altruism, fortitude, and joy. The story's original main character was Borlas, son of Baragond, who was the captain under Faramir who saved Faramir's life when Denethor tried to self-immolate both of them. A humorous side note, young Borlas was played by Billy Jackson, Peter Jackson's son in Lord of the Rings, who also played a child hobbit and both a Rohan and a Lake Town refugee. Borlas is now an old man himself, however his father's friendship with Peregrine Took would mean he would have friendly ties to the Took lineage. However, while old, if the time is any later, Borlas would by all accounts be dead and the story would no longer work at all. He's written as being maybe around 50 to 70 years for a modern man, but Denethor was 89 when he was met by Pippin and still rather hardy. So Borlas probably had the gift of the Numenor in him, but even then, 135 to 150 in the future is still pushing it. 
Being during the first few years of Eldarion's reign may make some succession issues as well, especially since both his parents recently passed. If his father was 20 in The Lord of the Rings, and his father remarried, say, at 55 to someone younger to birth Borlas, he could be 90 at around 125, which would make it work. Aragorn and his son both lived 210 and 220, respectively. I had actually on a whim considered trying my hand at writing this story, but realized after publishing my book and writing some other things that have and probably will go nowhere because I can't write human interaction at all, I'm just decent at world building and lore. I decided to go with a more Silmarillion chapter version of its telling as today is Hobbit Day or Frodo and Bilbo's shared birthdays. So here's how the story would start. As stated in his writings, descendants of the main three hobbits who married and had children would often go and visit Minas Tirith and Rohan. Sam and Rosie Gamgee's daughter, Eleanor, became one of Arwen's ladies-in-waiting as a royal honor, and the three families were very close with the House of Elisar. This would probably not change over the generations. At this time, King Eldarion, Aragorn's son, is King of Gondor, and though elderly, he is in the middle of his life, as he was born in year one of the four age and half-elven, living for 220 years. The hobbits are setting out on their once-in-a-decade trip to Gondor, taking their next generation of children. The children are the fourth generation from the original three. Of the second generation, Faramir Took, at 114, son of Pippin, along with his wife Goldilocks, also 114, who is the daughter of Sam, and the oldest surviving members capable of traveling. The third generation bringing them are Furiel Fairbairn, who's 90, and an unnamed husband, who was the daughter of Eleanor, daughter of Sam, and wife of Fastred Fairbairn, and Mary's unnamed grandkids. These old hobbits, however, would be more background characters. The hobbits that will be the protagonists will be the four to six younger cousin hobbits, probably four to mirror the original four. Names I came up with are Arwen Fairbairn, Harding Gardner, Bingo Gamgee, Marmaduke Brandybuck, and Eleanor Took. If any of you read the rough drafts, you will know that this is a nod to Bingo and Marmaduke, which Tolkien first called Frodo and Mary. I have not fleshed out their personalities at all, but Arwen I decided is more of a bookworm, as cheap wood-based paper and movable type from the East that were perfected by the dwarves made a number of books available and have exploded all over Middle-earth. As they travel, you will see them visit maybe Tom Bombadil, or perhaps run into Radagast, or even Ents visiting Tom, searching for Entwives, which were potentially killed by Sauron, according to Tolkien, but they still don't know that. They'll move on to Bree and begin to see signs of the cult of Sauron, and see the Stone Trolls move on to Weathertop, make their way to Rivendell, which is now run by Aragorn's daughters, who are Elrond's granddaughters, and it acts as a way station for the handful of elves still delaying their final journey to the west. Lothlorien is no more, just a big forest, returned entirely to nature that, once Galadriel and her ring left, that Arwen traveled to to die and be buried at after a mortal husband passed. Up until this point, it's just your average Hobbit adventure story. Though I would say this takes up no more than three to four chapters, unless this was to be a two-parter or a trilogy. The original half of the first book was twice as long as it needed to be, and full of filler, because it wasn't until they got to Rivendell that Tolkien even knew what the point and goal of the story was, or that the ring was evil. In fact, at one point, he had Strider written as being Bilbo in disguise when they got to Bree. Basically, he was told he had to write a sequel to The Hobbit, and he goes, I never planned to do that, and they said, well, do it anyway. So he just started writing, and that's why the first half of the Fellowship of the Ring book is so hard to get through for a beginner. It's at this point that the story begins to get a bit more dark. The Misty Mountains, which used to be riddled with orcs, goblins, and stone giants, were long gone after Aragorn took the throne, and one of the things about orcs is that they are so 
so hierarchical. Without a great presence or powerful leader, they will just wither away and die or even commit suicide. It's the way he got around the concept of Aragorn committing orc genocide, which would have some serious implications. Nerd of the Rings did a video discussing this. Because the area is so safe, the young cousins are allowed to go on ahead while the old hobbits take their time taking in the scenery. However, one night they sleep in a cave, and just like what happened to Thorin and company, a cave opens up and a horde of goblins capture them. They're taken down to Goblin Town, and a very evil, mannish-looking Uruk-hai lord decides to enslave them. At this point, they learn that while most of the orcs died out, the Uruk-hai, being both descended of elves and men, were able to maintain a hierarchical presence over a certain number of orcs, and have been hiding out deep in the Misty Mountains, rebuilding their population. Only the few Urukai had the willpower to keep going and were able to create a cult of Sauron using their wisdom of Saruman to gather and lead the more stronger-willed orcs. There is now a caste system in the population that sprang up with the decline of the Dark Lord. Urukai, less mannish Urukai, orcs and goblins, not quite sure how or if they're distinguished. However, when the hobbits get to the deepest furthest reaches, they discover an even lower caste, a people they work beside for around a month, who look remarkably like elves. It turns out that orcs are a product of selective breeding that started with Morgoth. He took elves and began twisting them, and selective breeding and eugenics are completely within that realm. When an orc is born, if it shows any genetic regression to be too elvish, it's killed, keeping the population pure. However, with their numbers so few in Urukai being half-breeds themselves, and without the Dark Lord's power in place, more and more elvish traits began popping up in the orc population. With their shortage of labor, instead of killing them, they were raised as the lowest caste of society, doing the absolute worst work, treated cruelly, and indoctrinated into the idea that they should be grateful to their betters. The hobbits are enslaved for nearly a month, whipped, and forced to mine in dangerous small areas, and in the process, they get to know these dark elves, and make them aware of an outside and the existence of powerful elves the walk in the light, free from oppression. Even orcs have some form of moral code and self-control. It's just really twisted, and they've been fed so many lies about elves, they seriously distrust elves the worst and view them as essentially evil. Then one day, when they're feeling most hopeless, a rogue figure appears and using pyrotechnic flashes from a staff and an elven sword, ends up killing their captors. The hobbits at first think he might be Gandalf, but it turns out that's not the case. He's one of the blue wizards with dark skin and wearing a turban, or maybe something akin to traditional African clothing, as he traveled south to help the Haradrim to resist Sauron's rule and their rulers, the Dark Numenor, even to the point of entering Africa. They were tasked with protecting the rest of Middle-earth and confining Sauron to the western part of the world. They had erected a giant magical barrier encircling much of Europe and some of the Levant, creating a great desert with the power to make people forget and always get turned around and come back, reacted to Sauron's presence, siphoning off his own power. This means that Middle-earth as we know it was specifically mostly Europe, having entirely forgotten about anything east and south of them. Upon his death, the desert began to recede, trade reopened between the Haradrim in the south, east and west, and trade reopened with Gondor and Harad under Aragorn. The Dark Elves are of course surprised by everything, including the idea that they have kin and might not be scum of the earth, like they were raised to believe actually, and contemplating about the entire system they were raised in. Over half the 
work crew the hobbits are assigned to decide to follow them and escape. Being chained, there is nothing the other Dark Elves can do to stop them, even though they still mostly believe the lies they were told as a religion. There are 13 Dark Elves, which hobbits dubbed the Unlucky 13, telling them about how Bilbo made the Unlucky 13 of Thorin and company into 14. They travel out of the mountain and head south toward Fangorn Forest. As Lothlorien is now empty of elves and have lost the power of Galadriel's ring, many have moved on to Fangorn. Due to its proximity to Helm's Deep, now called Aglorond, or the Glittering Caves, ruled by Gimli and Legolas. Algorond and Fangorn collectively have become a place many elves of the former Mirkwood and now called Greenwood drift to, aside from Rivendell, on their way to the west. Now Legolas and Gimli are technically considered at one point listed as leaving Middle-earth the same year Aragorn died, but if you use a very healthy dose of creative license and take the writing a little less literally, you can have at least a few familiar faces in the story. Otherwise, it would be some dwarf lord of the Glittering Caves, as neither Legolas nor Gimli had children or married, and elves would probably not stick around long enough to establish co-rulership. In Fangorn, they meet Quickbeam and other Ents, and elves along with Gildor, who now only loosely rules the elves of Fangorn, as it's more of a way station and less a kingdom, who take them to Gimli and Legolas, where they meet the other blue wizard, the one who went east, and now dresses more as a Taoist alchemist. It turns out that the other hobbits had gone ahead to Khazad-dûm in Moria to ask King Durin VII for help in searching for them. Messengers are immediately sent to report that they were found. When the Blue Wizards returned to the West, they met up with Radagast, who was hearing rumors of orc activity in the Cult of Sauron, and they began to investigate. Believing the desert was how the Ents lost the Entwives, Radagast prepares to set out southward, with many of the Ents to find the Entwives, as the desert recedes, to make it possible for the Ents to travel. The Wizard, the Hobbits, and Dark Elves come to Aglarond, meeting up with their very worried Elders. Elvish Elders welcome the Dark Elves, who have some issues adjusting, becoming more aware of the Cult of Sauron and where the books about it are coming from. This would be the end of book one to break it up the way that Tolkien does. And this could be halfway through one book or two books in general. Book 2 begins with Tolkien's sequel, Mostly Unchanged. Ceylon takes Borlas to a meeting of the Dark Lord cult, and here he learns the true point of the cult, and that is to allow the King of the Black Numenor of the East to take over from the inside using new paper medium propaganda and are working with the uruk providing provisions and aid so they can both seize all of Middle-earth and rule over it. The hobbits and some elves and a dark elf or two arrive in Gondor with news of the cult of Sauron. At the same time, Borlas and perhaps Ceylon, depending on if the writer decides Ceylon is an infiltrator or a member of the cult, also arrives and fills in his part about it. Eldarion is concerned, but as this kind of propaganda is very new, the idea of censoring things is a tactic of the Black Numenor. Several lords, already under the sway of the Black Numenor king, with promises of more power, resist and oppose this more, slowing him, and the cult of Sauron spreads worse and worse. Hatred now spreads and fear of foreigners, ideas of caring is weakness, and new ideas are all hated. Orcs are now the ideal among many of them, treated as strong and brave. Isolated areas are some of the worst where the cult of Sauron's books are heavily subsidized, while actual books with truth cost money. The uruk began marching their armies through these areas, pretending friendship and strength. Borlas is thrilled to meet his old friend the Hobbits, and befriends the Dark Elves, and Eldarion, being half-elven himself, treats the Dark Elves as children of his own. The cult is a minority among humans, but with the orcs, it becomes an equal force to the king. This leads to orcs and 
and several lordships declaring war with a possible attempted palace coup, depending on how the writer decides to go with it. And the Dark Numenor army attacks to liberate these lords' lands, and the fighting becomes bloody between the two kingdoms. This leads to a civil war. However, a contingent of healed but magically disguised Dark Elves, along with some of the hobbits, begin to infiltrate the orc rank and begin to spread new ideas themselves. This type of magical disguise was used by Finrod Felagund in the Lay of Beren and Luthien Tenuviel. This makes orcs question the cult of Sauron, and instead the idea that orcs were made slaves of their own system. Some begin to defect, including some stronger-minded young orcs who are now free of the mental poison of the darkness. With some distrust, the elves do welcome them, and they act as an ally in the war when the hate-filled Sauronic humans and orcs appear to be nearly winning. They end up pushing back the army all the way to the Harad, and in the process, with the Eastern Blue Wizards having set up a network of resistance leaders in the Harad, are able to take down the Dark Numenor Empire, freeing the people and ending the cult of Sauron once and for all. At the end of the war, the Blue Wizard, who rescued the hobbits and Dark Elves, take them back to the Shire. He's heading to the west and bringing some of the Dark Elves and other Elves with him. He lets them know that they're witnessing a new age of decline, and many of the laws of Arda, in very basic things, will cease to apply over a thousand years. Animals and grains that were farmed by elves will become more and more wild. Hobbits, who are blessed with some unknown magical quality, will eventually just become human. Dwarves will delve deeper into their minds and then sleep to be taken by Aule to a place that he prepared for them. All swords, metalworking, and palaces will rapidly decay, leaving no trace. People will drift and become hunter-gatherers, and while difficult, Mandos has foreseen that the humans will rebuild their former glory using these new rules of nature without the blessings of the Valinor. It is now the humans and humans alone that guide their own future. Several of the Dark Elves stay with the Hobbits, but eventually move on to Valinor once the last of their friends die. This is my idea for a sequel to The Lord of the Rings, wrapping up nicely into how it ties into and exists in the real world. This would have had to happen roughly 12,000 to 8,000 years ago, as civilizations fell from the Sumerian to Bronze Age collapse to the Canaanites to the Mayans. As these complex networks died out, many returned to much more primitive styles of living relatively easily. Some herding, some farming, and some such, as in the case of the Mayan, back to hunting and gathering. I had a similar rationalization with my video about a decade ago on Middle-earth creationism called My Geekiest Video Ever, The Silmarillion and Religion. A few of these points near the end need some better fleshing out and foreshadowing, but I feel it's a much more Tolkien-esque story than the one he abandoned. Maybe someone or several someones will be inspired to write this up as a real novel someday, though until trademark goes into public domain, it'll just have to be fanfic, without the estate's blessing.